Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this week's episode, we sit down with Amber Balde. We chat with her about her background, the Zcash community, her role at the foundation, and more. Before we start, we would like to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Neufund. Neufund is building an ERC-20-compatible and open-source technical environment, enabling tokenization of real-world assets, assets like equity in a company or real estate. They do so by implementing protocols that bind off-chain assets with their on-chain representations. Neufund is currently looking for a DevOps engineer to help them support their infrastructure development, as well as introduce and implement new solutions. Check out the job offer at neufund.org slash careers or review Neufund's GitHub at github.com slash Neufund. So thank you again. And now here's our interview with Amber. So today we are sitting at Zcon One in sunny Croatia with Amber Balde. Hi, Amber. Hi, great to be here. And we're also here with Frederick. Hello. So I guess I'm kind of curious, how do you guys like Zcon One so far? It's very good. I mean, this is just the second day, but exciting so far. A lot of good talks. Yeah, I mean, Zcon Zero last year was probably the best conference I went to all year, just from a collection of people and kind of heterogeneity of ideas and people working on things. Despite it being kind of a narrow focus, the types of projects people are working on are super diverse. And so I'm really excited to do that again this year. What's your relationship to Zcash? Well, at this point, I'm on the board of the Zcash Foundation, uh, which was a public election that happened last year, although in action by the board, it was really more of a recommendation to the current board, which they chose to go with the public recommendation. Um, so Ian Myers and I were added last year. Uh, that's the official connection now. Previously, when I was at uh, JP Morgan, um, I had uh, worked on a project where we were adding privacy uh, to an enterprise blockchain. And so uh, Zcash, the company, which is now the electric coin company, um, was working on what was called ZSL, their zero knowledge security layer. Uh, and so we added that in as the first kind of real implementation of an enterprise grade zero knowledge system. Um, previously to that, I actually had, uh, known Zuko for a number of years, I think going back to, you know, hanging out at DEF CON ages ago. So that's kind of where we knew each other from. I'm actually curious about the Zcash Foundation board because it's kind of unclear to me, like how many people are on this board? What's the function of it? What's the purpose? And, uh, yeah, like you mentioned a little bit about the election process, but who else is on the board and how did they get there? There's five people on the board. It's all public info up on the the .org site, which has migrated. It used to be at uh, zcash.foundation or something that was horrendous to remember. So now it's just zfund.org. Um, so there's five people. The chair is Andrew Miller. Um, then there's Matt Green. Uh, there's Peter Van Valkenburg. 
there is um, myself and Ian Myers, and Josh Cincinnati is the executive director. Technically, the the board's role is really just to fire Josh if he's doing a bad job. <laughs> um, we don't we're not involved in day to day operations of the foundation at all. You know, when when they're putting together, say, a batch of grant uh, proposals or approvals, um, you know, the the foundation will decide what they'd like to propose as the approvals. We'll give it a final once over and say, yeah, this looks rational. We don't see any red flags here, go ahead. Um, but it's not our job to kind of comb through and, and micromanage the foundation. You kind of mentioned you met Zuko back back in the day. What were you working on before all of this? Like where, I'm, I'm really curious, like what angle you came into the space? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> that's a very different tangential story. Um, specifically, the reason that I had met um, Zuko at the time was that in 2013, I gave a talk at DEF CON about um, crisis intervention and suicide intervention for hackers um, because I was uh, taking training in doing and suicide intervention um, and kind of hotline support and things as that was moving online. It was something that I was interested in. Um, and uh, at the time, uh, I was also ha- there happened to be the uh, suicide of Aaron Schwartz um, in relation to the JSTOR files and all of that, um, which was incredibly unfortunate and uh, really um, made the security community much more vocal about uh, talking about mental health in the community. And so it was a pure coincidence that I happened to be able to kind of share some of this um, training, which is really in 60 minutes, you're not going to give people a whole lot of medical training, but mm-hmm. how to support friends, how to recognize risk signals, how do we even begin this kind of conversation. Um, there can be higher rates of um, mental health issues in these kinds of communities, specifically where you have people that have trouble uh, working within established um, mental health systems because they're seen, like if you go in and you, you describe your daily life as an information security professional, you can sound paranoid because you d- are dealing with real nation state actors sometimes, wow. like sometimes they are out to get you. Uh, and so it can be very difficult, but at the same time, people are very reticent to talk to their friends. We're in a privacy community. You don't share things. It's seen as vulnerability. Um, and so it, it's difficult to navigate. And uh, Zuko has always been very open uh, about his own kind of, you know, he's, if you read his Twitter, he's kind of an open book, right? And so it's something that he also has been passionate about. And we kind of just connected um, about the humanism or humanity uh, within this quote unquote space. And I, I think that, you know, that this space did not exist back then. Um, but the bleeding together of cryptography, security, politics, economics, like it's simply, um, you know, Bitcoin existed, you know, back then, but it was just kind of this funny thing for hackers to mess around with. Um, we didn't really think it was going to become what it has now. Uh, I mean, I remember being at JP Morgan and searching on their intranet to see if there was some like FX desk that was doing something with it in a small way. I didn't realize that it would be this, um, that that would be a major kind of PR event if it ever happened. I just thought, oh, well, of course they'll do that. Um, but it kept being like zero results, zero results on, on the intranet. And so I realized, you know, nobody's looking at this or using it. And, and maybe it is just going to be always kind of this side project. And then um, there was this team that, you know, I heard some of my favorite engineers were all kind of like going to work on this skunkworks thing. And I was like, cool. Well, that's more fun than the client facing single dealer platform I'm building now. Like, let's go see what's going on there. Um, and they weren't just working on what at the time they were like, it's not Bitcoin, it's blockchain. And I was like, well, what are you going to do with that? Um, <laughs> but, you know, they were also working on, um, you know, API stuff and cloud stuff and cognitive stuff and whatever. So I went over, I actually worked on a machine learning 
learning project first and then ended up kind of working with the blockchain team, which at the time was a handful of people working on stuff on dev laptops. It was really a process to bring that to the wider um, company and make it a thing that had a lot of like momentum and force behind it. But you were you were already working at J.P. Morgan at this time. Yeah, yeah, I worked there for a number of years before the um, new product development team was created. What's your own background in in that? I mean, you're you're kind of touching on a lot of subjects here between like information security, cryptography machine learning like there's a lot large space there what's your training what's your like main thing that you've been working in yeah i'm not a cryptographer i guess i could play one on tv but i definitely to be clear i'm not <laughs> a cryptographer mathematical applied or otherwise um but uh let's see so i went to school for political science and economics i was always interested in that kind of crossover um however i just on my own was kind of doing development things as the internet was kind of becoming a thing, I guess, since I was a kid. At, at the time, we didn't have all this like girls in STEM kind of programs. I didn't realize something that it, I, I should or shouldn't be doing. Um, it was just fun. I assumed everybody sat at home and like created websites and wrote scripts and did stuff. And like, you know, it wasn't super high level, but it, I knew what was going on. Um, and then when I was um, working uh, as kind of an assistant on a, a trading desk, uh, when I went into, I ended up going into um, finance, really, because not because I wanted to get banker bonuses, um, but because I, I was really interested in the political and economic power structures that kind of seemed to drive everything. Mm. And it didn't make sense to me to go to a startup where you're completely on the other side of the wall. You're shut out. You're trying to figure out how do you get in? Like, how do you disrupt, quote unquote? Uh, I wanted to just be close to the people who are making the decisions. I didn't ever expect to be in a position where I would be able to divert or change or impact that. It didn't seem like something one person did. And I could not have manufactured this kind of zeitgeist we have now uh, if I wanted to. I just, you know, it's not so much that I happened to be in the right place at the right time, because certainly I spent my entire career, like, I guess I veered off there. But, you know, I ended up becoming a developer of some trading assistant tools because they needed them and it didn't work. They couldn't reconcile their books. I, so I built them an accounting system. And then I said, maybe I should just go and be a developer full time. Did that for a while and really hated having other people tell me what to build. So I ended up moving more towards product management, and that meant I worked in different areas of financial technology and no longer was just, you know, doing trading tools. Then I could work on, you know, treasury services or in investor relations or custody, you know, so having kind of a broader view of what made things work was something that I didn't get as a developer because there you're just like, you know, execute this very small portion of the thing. Um, and, uh, part of my purview at various points was making sure that, um, all of the, uh, security kind of risk was managed and mitigated. And, you know, we were doing various types of testing and all that. Uh, so it all kind of came together and in that way. I'm a bit of a, a generalist. Um, and so I happened to be in a place where when they needed to explain, blockchain to some executives and you got two responses. You either got a developer walk in and try to explain hashing, or you got a consultant to come in with a PowerPoint that was just told they're in charge of the blockchain who would then try to explain hashing. And like both of them were just different types of a mess. So I was able to kind of just relate what this meant to them in context at a higher level. And I guess that was unique at the time. 
That's actually something that we've uh, talked about on this podcast before. Like, how do you introduce the topic of blockchain? It's incredibly complicated. Like, I've tried all those approaches that you just mentioned and failed at all of them in the past. It's sort of like you can come in and try to explain the technical stuff or come in and explain like super high level vision of like, oh, decentralizing everything doesn't, doesn't mean anything neither, to normal neither people. Neither land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What were you building with in those early days in the blockchain world? Like a fork of Bitcoin or something from scratch? Or what, what was the tech stack? Um, there were a number of things that that early team was working on. I, per a variety of legal things, I can't really talk about all of that. Sure. Um, but, you know, there was an, an in-house uh, kind of blockchain-y type project, which was really something that looked more like Git than like a blockchain. That team since went on and founded Kadena. Um, then there was another team that was looking at Ethereum and whether or not they were going to be able to solve some privacy challenges there. There's some early um, work. And then uh, when my co-founder now, Patrick Nielsen, had come in, he had kind of applied the, a lot of the principles of PGP to solving uh, some of the um, how we could add private state trees in addition to the public state trees of Ethereum. And that was kind of where the, the nexus of that kind of thing really took off. Um, but then it was also our job to evaluate pretty much every other stack out there. Anything that was runnable, you know, you would run in, in your lab to make sure that to, to evaluate. You want to make sure that it was a huge market to just see what we should be working with. We haven't really talked about Quorum on this podcast before. We might do an episode in the future trying to dig into it, but uh, it is a project that comes out of JP Morgan. Is this something that came out of um, JP Morgan when you were there? Yeah, it was one of the projects that the teams that I was working with um, was working on. Early on, there were a very small number of people, and we were handling both you know, use case analysis as well as development tasks. Um, and now they're really kind of two distinct teams. I think they even, ha you know, Quorum has its own team now entirely. Um, and then uh, kind of the use case progression is separate. Um, but it was simply the an attempt to uh, explore what privacy on a permissioned ledger would look like because um, privacy and scaling were the two major challenges that would prevent this technology from being used uh, within enterprise. So after your work at JP Morgan, you left and founded your own project. Tell us a little bit about what Clover is. Sure. So Clover is working on the uh, kind of, well, a, a whole number of challenges. But one of the things that I realized in attempting to deploy and make real this technology within enterprise settings was that there's not, you can't really uh, use a lot of the existing um, DevOps, for lack of a better word, kind of uh, tool chain in order to um, deploy, manage, maintain, upgrade these sorts of networks. There are some stabs where people are trying to make that work now, but I find that they are Oh, and I hate the word, but centralized in that they kind of take away the power of the businesses that are attempting to run these permission networks. I know we don't normally think of businesses as being the ones that need to have power in these networks. We're always talking about users as individuals, but in a permission network, your businesses are like your individual users. And if you have another company that comes in and maintains all the configs and maintains all the infrastructure, and maybe it even only runs in a single cloud, then you know, you're know you not really achieving probably what you set out to achieve 
which from a business perspective is often to free themselves from a lot of these very st sticky vendor contracts that they have. And you're also introducing future risk around a single choice of platform or infrastructure or provider. Um, so we're solving some of that. And then there's integration challenges of hooking the stuff into your existing uh, systems. And then um, the ease of use from a developer standpoint to build applications on top of that, let alone distribute and access um, the way you handle in interfacing enterprise authentication systems with these. I mean, just none of that exists. Uh, so we're working on all that, but also in a way that if you were an individual or a hobbyist startup small business, you might also be able to take advantage of something that has been built to run in a very large, robust way. But in, um, you know, it's still cool enough to use to connect to public chains and for like your awesome individual projects. Was it quite dramatic to leave a more corporate environment and go off on your own? Or do you feel like it was kind of, you were ready? <laughs> I, I was ready at that point. I mean, I, like I said, I don't, didn't expect to be able to kind of, um, have the impact that I did at the time, but, um, <clears throat> there was definitely an kind of 80, 20 return principle sort of happening where once we had say pushed out, out this code on GitHub and had done the initial projects, like the next 20% for them is a lot of work. Uh, and, um, it, it was becoming very bureaucratic. And so it was, you know, also a bank is not a technology company. Company. As much as, as every bank these days or every company goes out and says, we're a technology company now, fundamentally, they're not. They're not used to, they don't support users who dial in and say, I'm using your technology product. And so a lot of the work that has to be done is low level, is not going to demonstrate a return on investment quickly um, from a corporate level perspective. And it, they're, it's, they're not incentivized to work on the challenges that need to be addressed right now. Mm. So did you feel it was freeing to leave? In that I can make my own decisions. Certainly it's, it's more freeing. Um, but certainly when you make some difficult decisions, it's nice to sometimes not have that responsibility on your shoulders. So it's always a double-edged sword. I have a friend who went from being a startup founder like many times over to working at for a company and actually loved the fact that he, he was kind of like, you know, when something breaks over there at three in the morning, I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, you know, what, what I realized, though, is, you know, there are types of people, some, you're at different points in your career at different times. And there are times when maybe you want to leave, not have to think about um, what's going on elsewhere, go home, play with your kids and put them to bed and not have stay up until midnight worrying about somebody else's problems. But there are also people where no matter whether you have that responsibility or not, you're going to be thinking about how do you improve the organization? What could I be doing here? You know, I was still way, way before I was on the blockchain team, I'd wake up at 5am and think I could improve this process if I like tweaked this thing over here. And so I would do that whether I was working at a large organization that I was not actually responsible for or my own startup. So I might as well be benefiting from it at my own startup. <laughs> All right, bringing it back to Zcash and the board a little bit. We already talked about it a bit. Um, obviously, Zcash started from the company, started with the, the Zcash company, I think it was called, now called Electric Coin Company. The board, the foundation was added later, and there's been a long struggle to make it recognized that these are two separate entities. But it, I feel like it's really getting there now. Like the people know that the Electric Coin Company and the Zcash Foundation are different. But I, I still don't think people really understand what the different functions are, like where they differ. Um, but just 
like looking at this, adding this foundation after the fact, how has that been in your eyes and sort of why, why was it done? Well, the foundation was added after the fact to begin the process of diversifying the governance uh, of not just the coin, but of the protocol, which might have other um, uses. And the foundation has a wider mandate around supporting privacy, digital privacy, internet privacy, financial privacy. It's it's a much broader mandate. One of the things that I was very um, insistent on when I had said I would like to be on the board was that uh, we needed to work on making sure people understood these are two very different things and that the foundation's mandate is uh, around digital privacy and internet freedom. It is not to support uh, the price of Zcash. (laughs) Certainly, you know, it's called the Zcash Foundation. Like we believe that that protocol is an important component. And right now, uh, the best in class, best effort thing to get us there. And that means that we absolutely uh, support Zcash. But, you know, it's our job to also be critical of it and to push them forward to identify gaps, both in um, usability and in features. We often call out, you know, there's not enough Z address to Z address volume, you know, it's, it's, it's our job to provide a bit of a check and balance. It came from or was funded by the Founders Reward, which I think is an awful name um, and has gotten them into a lot of trouble. But nothing was changed in the protocol to direct part of the Founders Reward to the foundation. It was actually the people who receive that right now who voluntarily decided to contribute part of what was being given to them to create a separate entity that actually has oversight over them. And I think people should be aware of that. Now, there are there is discussion now to kind of change it so that it's it's more clear in the at the consensus level exactly how this um where the money is going um but that's where it came from initially that actually was a question that i had when i was thinking about the foundation was like how is it funded a lot of times if you look at you know companies that ran icos during the boom they would have created these foundations to be able to receive these funds with like you know, great tax benefits. But in this case, this is a foundation. It's it's not based in Switzerland, is it? It's, it's a US-based 501c3, um, which also means a couple additional things. Uh, one is that uh, we are bound by a commitment to public good, which um, means that we're actually not supposed to or and have to prove by a certain amount of time that we don't just get all of our funds from, say, a single source or a couple rich guys. <laughs> like nonprofits in the U.S. need to demonstrate a diverse uh, donor base. And so founders reward or not, which there is a mathematical ending to when the founders reward will stop, but we need to move to a more standard donation model anyway. And that means that we have to treat Treat this like an outreach program and make other people um, vested in the success of that foundation beyond just the Zcash protocol. That's interesting. And not being the legal person, maybe you don't have the answer, but is the like if you were to get block rewards in, in some form in the future, is that considered one donor? Because technically you're like taking money from all of Zcash. <laughs> users. I don't think the legal person, any legal person has a great answer for that (laughs) right now, because that's a little out of the purview. But sure, I would love to look at it that way. Um, But also being a 501c3 means that we don't engage in any lobbying activity. Um, And uh, also being US based, uh, there's a fiduciary obligation, there's a variety of other kind of reasons that it's here. Um, 
because we're not like trying to create a Swiss foundation so that we can just go do some interesting things and call it a foundation. Uh, it's meant to provide some um, oversight and, uh, and, and provide that kind of check uh, in a way where people can trust or know what they're getting. And people are very uh, familiar with the concept of a 501c3. In the blockchain space, I guess the the foundations have developed some sort of style. There is, you see it kind of repeating, the Tezos Foundation, the Ethereum Foundation, Web3 Foundation, um, often it will be about like giving out grants and finding projects. In the case of Zcash, like I don't, I actually don't know the volumes, but does the Zcash Foundation have that sort of capacity to really, really put out money into the ecosystem or is it still dependent on the company to also fund ecosystem projects? Well, both are funding ecosystem projects, but we have different motives, different incentive models. Uh, the Electric Coin Company is a for-profit entity. Um, a, the foundation does have a grant program. Um, we're committed, to, I think, this year to giving out over $500,000 in grants, which is considerable. Um, I think last year it was 250000 which also included some matching. Uh, so it's grown every year. Uh, the difference with the foundation is that some of these grants are more... Um, we try to strike a balance between things that are like solid research that we're quite sure is going to have a deliverable that is useful and things that are more high risk, high reward, uh, and maybe wouldn't be funded by somebody that has a limited runway and an investor base and a profit model. Uh, and so also we don't have to focus on things that are exclusively of benefit to Zcash as a protocol, but can be more uh, privacy research in general um, or zero knowledge kind of more broad. Broadly, is a, a, of course, as a focus area, um, but it means we have a bit of a broader mandate. So, as you mentioned, the the company has taken uh, some of its founders' rewards and given it to the foundation, and that's sort of how the initial funding has happened. That also means that the fund, like the company, actually wants to remove itself as the sole sort of entity in this space. What's the motivation behind that? How is that working out? Like, why don't they just keep going with whatever they're doing? Um, yeah, a number of things have happened over the last year. So they transitioned the um, community forums are now managed by the foundation instead of the company. Um, there's discussions about a what they would call multi-sig, but that's just a, a, an in-group way of saying kind of shared governance over the uh, trademark called Zcash. Um, there's also the foundation is creating, uh, and has released now a completely separate implementation of the Zcash protocol. So no longer is the Zcash company, which uses Zcash D that's the, um, the, the, that's the node that everybody runs right now. You can now run a rust version of that that's called zebra that has a variety of security, um, implications and is good for the health of the network. Um, and everyone recognizes that having this kind of diversity is good. The company recognizes that having that kind of diversity is good because they want Zcash to succeed. And part of that is public perception of, uh, the willingness to not be the center of the universe. Um, part of that is their own understanding of the risk that that imposes. They all chose to work there because they share that philosophy and they absolutely have been putting it into practice. That doesn't mean that there's not drama sometimes, that there's not um, decisions or proposals that gets everyone riled up. You know, it's a bit of an experiment. Nobody's done this before, uh, but I think a lot of it has been in, in good faith. I think the shared um, trademark Thing is interesting because it, it really does mean that both parties have to agree to 
a set of changes to the protocol to be able to call it Zcash. If one party doesn't agree to this set of changes, then they're not going to agree to give the trademark to whatever that thing becomes. So if if one party forked off, then they couldn't call it Zcash anymore. Yes, and that's more than just the the trademark. Um, Zcash is interesting in that there is a specific actual specification that is considered Zcash and then multiple implementations thereof. Until now with the second implementation, the code has been the the code is law, you know, but uh, the the code is um, canonical to the spec. Now the spec is hoping to take precedence over that uh, with the two implementations being subjugated to it. Uh, there is a new thing called the zip process, much like the BIP process. Or the EIP process. Or the EIP process. Do we call that the EIP process? I don't know. <laughs> Some people um, say EIP. <laughs> uh, but the, the Zcash Im- improvement proposal process, um, where, which is now upstream of the Zcash network upgrade process, so that everything, every proposed change is circulated to the public for at least two months to provide adequate time for feedback, to solicit more kind of contributions and more engagement, um, and uh, then would be implemented in both places. Right now, there's two implementations, but like, is the Zcash Foundation encouraging more? Yeah, absolutely. But you know, if if you look at Bitcoin as well, like there's like 12 or maybe even more different implementations. But if you actually look at what's running, only over 95% of the network is running Bitcoin D. So, you know, I think Ethereum is is actually a little um, better. There's a, a I don't know what the percentage of parity Ethereum knows is now, but it's non-trivial for sure. And you can see how um, having those two communities has increased conversation, um, whereas it, it's different when you have a number of implementations, but only one that matters. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good point. So the, what I typically say is it's a consensus relevant node <laughs> or not. And yeah, there exist many implementations of Bitcoin. I can, like Bitcoin is simple, it's pretty easy to write an implementation. Um, but it's very, very hard to convince miners to use it or even to convince users to use it. Those two things are also very distinct cases. And like if you look at Ethereum, uh, there's maybe something like 20% of, of uh, Ethereum nodes that are used by users. But if we look at miners, it's majority parity nodes. And so like there are two like very evenly distributed implementations among the miners. So both are consensus relevant to the highest degree. And like, all right, like there is no canonical version of the spec as defined by code because there isn't a single implementation that would be able to define uh, the protocol. Yeah, and it really changes the tenor and the types of conversations that ha- happen in those communities and across the kind of micro sub communities therein. But there's always this argument, um, especially within the Bitcoin community, that you hear of if you don't like it, you know, take go write your own implementation. But when you look at, to your point, like how how much it's used, it's not simply writing it and they will come. There's a huge kind of momentum and network effect issue, and sometimes they do, you know, have splinters that are meaningful. Um, but it's, it's not just like, you know, one person can just, uh, go off and, and still that you're, you're choosing to leave that, uh, the main community if you do that right now. Do you think that now because of two implementations, the power of a minor changes because before the minor maybe didn't have any choice? This is very complex sorts of conversations (laughs) that are going to get me lots of flames on Twitter. So, um, I would say <laughs> there's uh within 
Zcash um, mining conversations, there's been a lot of discussion also of ASIC resistance recently and over the last year. Um, and uh, I think that it's it's an ongoing conversation, so we'll see what happens. Um, but within the foundation, we also kind of have that flexibility to say we did fund a major project to both um, examine the actual effect of ASIC resistance on the current network, um, which I think ended up being like 20 to 30% of network traffic was coming out of the expected out of um, out of ASIC miners, um, although they're from a very small number of pools, which are the majority of transactions, et cetera, but getting to fund that kind of work. And then also uh, can, like, like I said, we can kind of take that um, flyball on something that might be riskier and say, let's work on developing or, or maintaining ASIC resistance in some way that might be futile, but, you know, we can throw some money at that. And that does uh, kind of having that kind of choice changes minor behavior. This is a sort of a side thing. You called the second implementation Zcash Zebra implementation? Yes, or? that was the name that was given to it. It was actually developed by the parity team and then kind of handed over. And now there's a full-time technical resource that is um, paid by the foundation. We have a technical team now of, I think, four people um, that are actually amazing, amazing uh, qualifications and credentials. Really great team. Uh, but so it, that is maintained now by the foundation. And they named it Zebra because I guess we have a, a zeal as our mascot per your shirt which is a collection of zebras yeah it's a that, that was an interesting process i mean the, it started a long time ago talking to josh the executive director and parody is interested in building blockchains like that's what we do <laughs> so got in touch with them and they asked if we were keen on on building this first version of it like get it to where it's able to sync the network and then the foundation could take it over and uh, i think that's been super success all all around like it's delivered we, two months early so props for that yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah so hand it over renamed zebra super excited to see where it goes and and uh yeah i i am curious like even though i know some of this background story might not um the audience might not. <laughs> and um, so I'm curious, like, what was the motivation behind, um, like, finding someone else to do it rather than just start from scratch ourselves? Or, like, you know, why Rust? Why, why any of these things and not just... So this is where I can say as a board member, I was not involved in that decision early on. I was told later this was a thing they wanted to do. And I said, awesome. I love that team. Sounds great. Good job. Um, but at the time, uh, as you're well aware, onboarding and ramping up a technical team to begin an implementation of that from scratch would have been complex. Uh, it makes a lot more sense, especially when we have an existing relationship to leverage that. Uh, I think Rust is a great choice now. Um, and I can see technically why people wanted to move that direction. Of course, the parity team, that is their area of expertise. Uh, and so kind of the, the stars simply aligned there. And now it is what it is. Have you been following the sort of explosion of rust in this ecosystem? I've been aware of an explosion of interest in formal methods in general and people being attracted to um, determinism in a way that we see a lot more uh, engineers here who have backgrounds in OCaml, Rust, Haskell, 
Scala, what have you. And so, um, you know, we joke mostly about like, you know, if now's a great time to be a Haskell developer, you can actually get a job in it. And, you know, I forget who it was, but they were kind of complaining that all the great Haskell talent is now being dedicated into this one area of research. And, you know, is that actually a great thing? Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great to, to see. Yeah. I think, uh, from my observation, the turning point seems to be that there's this huge area of people who just have not had a different choice than C++ because they need the performance requirements and like memory layout and, and very specific behavior of their program. Like if you're writing cryptography, you need to very precisely control how things execute and you just can't do that in something like Haskell. And so they've been stuck to C++. And now Rust sort of came along the scene for the for many years. Everyone was saying, we can't use it because there's no libraries. We, can't, like, we don't want to rewrite everything in the whole world from scratch just to use a different language. Like It doesn't make sense. And we've come to a point where there is enough library support, there is enough like community and enough tooling, enough backing that writing something in Rust today is like a rational choice compared to C++. Yeah, it's important to also remember that these things are componentized and that your whole stack doesn't have to be one thing. And in trying to appeal to a broader base or sell into an enterprise environment, which still sees this stuff as completely exotic, um, that you need to identify which portions of what you're building need specific types of security properties like you're talking about, where where your SDK might be different, like where you can make other choices that help you appeal to kind of the broadest base. And, you know, I'm kind of against evangelism of any sort, but definitely, um, I mean, I think we're seeing some stronger products and some products that will not fall over in ways that others are because of these kinds of choices, yeah. I found last year at ZCon Zero, it was very much for me, like it was incredibly inspiring. And what I saw after Zcon Zero was sort of like a lot of these projects come to fruition or start to be implemented. Now we're at Zcon 1. We were sort of seeing a little glimpse into the future of what could be happening around the Zcash Foundation, around the Zcash protocol. What are you seeing from where you're sitting as the future? Well, I think that a year feels like a long time. Sometimes it feels like a short time, but in the, the space of academic research, it's in an extremely short period of time. And one of the best things about all of this money and crypto economic incentives, et cetera, has been the influx of attention and research to an area of study that has often kind of languished in the basement <laughs> and n like new practical applications of um, cryptography that's been around for some time. But when you look at, at some of these tools, they've, been, they've existed for 30 years, you know, now, and they're just now be being used practically and at scale. Um, and so when we look at research that just came out last year, you know, maybe it doesn't need 30 years, but maybe it still needs 15 years. Um, and especially things that are quote unquote zero knowledge, um, the the challenges and the issues uh, with them can be extremely subtle, and there is a very small number of people globally that are qualified to audit these systems. And so it's great that a lot of people are trying to figure out how to use them and build with them. But that means that the um, eyeballs of the people that can audit them are ever more strained. And a lot of times the people that audit are the same people that build mm. and they look at each other's projects. But I, I think of the kind of Swiss voting system that uh, came out uh, a couple months ago. It came out that 
there was an issue um, in the way that they were shuffling votes. And they were also using kind of uh, some sort of, I, I don't remember the exact details of it, but there was um, a, a piece of uh, zero knowledge kind of voting in there that was supposed to provide some of the anonymity properties. Um, but then they were shuffling things. And it just turned out that the way that they were doing it, and it had been audited previously and passed flying colors, that there was something wrong with it. And if, it, when you do something like that with an election, and then you call it a secure election, and then you say it's been mathematically proven, it becomes ever harder to falsify or say this is this um, was not uh, above board. Um, so we need to be cautious with how quickly we rush to embrace these things, let alone to say, you know, everybody stands up a, their project and says, hey, it's it's so much greater. Come look at this thing because we do X, Y, Z better. But they're not mentioning that, oh, well, here's the trade-off that we made or the assumption that we made. Um, and it's for academic research. That's totally fine. Uh, but we need to be pragmatic and realistic about how much we should push and and uh, really put things in production before they should be there. Going back to that example of the Swiss voting system using some sort of ZK and then like how was how was that discovered? Actually, I was Matt Green and Sarah Jamie Lewis. They were literally, I think, as often, like, I think a lot of um, voluntary audits are rage inspired. So <laughs> I think that there had been some uh, statements made that just seemed a little too good to be true. Um, and, and we were very lucky to have their kind of expertise uh, take a look at it. And there was some good press around that. Could that be a threat in a way to the excitement around this space? Like when things like that are found or should it make people feel more confident or less? I mean, I think if most regular people understood how broken and what the constant security cycle is of the software they use, like they would never touch an electronic device. <laughs> so um, I think it's good that, you know, that not knowing about a bug doesn't mean the bug's not there. It's like the bugs you don't know about that are a problem. Um, so I think it's, of course, fantastic. Uh, but it was a good reminder or cautionary tale of what happens when you push something novel forward, perhaps before it's ready, especially so you can put in your press release, hey, we did this thing with zero knowledge. I always, uh, like, there's always this uh, tension between, you know, like you say, pushing something, and then if it doesn't live up to expectation, it can fall flat and just die from there. So like, Enterprise hopefully not cryptocurrency. <laughs> but like VR, like VR in the 90s. Yeah. VR in the 90s was super pushed and you had these headsets and like arcades and everything. It was awesome. But then it kind of sucked and like uh, everyone left it. It completely died. No one kept pushing the research. No one did anything. And then like resurrected 15 years later. Um, totally. you know, we could run into that where like there's just so much rumor so much awesome things being said about zero knowledge proves it'll solve all your problems there's a string of like you know exploits and then everyone goes well this is all shit completely just dumps it and then we'll have to wait 15 years for it to come back again <laughs> yeah and we run the risk also of people i hear people all the time now just throw out like oh well we're going to zero knowledge that and i'm like what the heck are you talking about <laughs> um but they've decided that this is the only way to achieve privacy as though it's like not just a silver bullet, but will become the de facto way we compute everything. And, you know, it's, it's especially it goes along with like the take back your data idea. Like back in, you know, the 90s, I had a computer, it sat on my desk and all the files were inside it and uh, all my data was mine. So um, there are plenty of ways and models to, ha to have different data models, to have different privacy models, to understand different threat models. And it's not so simple as needing to say we need to put zero knowledge around every computation that exists. So I don't think that should be the 
the goal. What do you think could be next after zero knowledge? In the enterprise space, it's all the, c- the cognitive is now the thing, right? So we went from, uh, we have if-then statements to we're doing um, data science to we're doing machine learning to AI to now cognitive and, and neural, right? And they just said, like, I'm like, these are um, not nouns, but now we're just using them as nouns. So, <laughs> that's, nice. so beyond that, I assume next will be like singularity or like some sort of enterprise Kurtzwellian <laughs> kind of thing. I don't know oh how you God. attach that to your current Java stack, but that's that's what's next, in my opinion. Very cool. All right, Amber, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.